Good morning. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible, one chapter at a time, and that includes these chapters that are sometimes hard to make sense of. We've just looked at the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, and it's been really cool. We've seen the historical context. You saw these Christmas prophecies and how they fit into what was going on with the Assyrian threat, with the invasion and the siege of Jerusalem, with King Hezekiah, and and we saw all that, and and how it just all the pieces seem to fit together, very very kind of logical, um, and then all of a sudden here in Isaiah thirteen, there's a really hard pivot, and well, hang on, what happened to everything? We're not in Kansas anymore. All of a sudden, we're talking about judgment against Babylon. It seems to be a very different historical setting. What's going on? Um, and, and the whole thing has changed here. And actually for very many chapters here, at least uh, 11 chapters, if not longer, it seems like the perspective of Isaiah has changed significantly, um, almost to the point where you're like, is this a different book? So what are we doing here? Why all of a sudden are we talking about Babylon? These are the questions we're going to be taking up today. How does this fit in with the first 12 chapters? And joining us to take a look at these things, we've got Pastor David Reedy, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio, how I love San Antonio. Welcome, brother. So good to have you with us. And I think this is our first time together, so a special welcome to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So how are the brothers and sisters down in San Antonio? You guys, like, that, that is the best place to be um, from, like, October through uh, February. <laughs> I, I think if you visited San Antonio before, so you're you're absolutely correct. It's, uh, it's finally starting to cool off, and we're starting to get a little rain, which is a great blessing for us. And uh, but San Antonio is a, a really tremendous city. Uh, a lot of good people here, and it's a wonderful mission ground for uh, doing ministry for the Lord. Yeah, and why absolutely there's a lot of stuff going on, there's a lot of changes going on in the city and um and then you just got little gems like Taco Haven, right? This is true, Taco Cabana <laughs> and even having an In-N-Out burger. So. What you guys have an In-N-Out now? Well, wow, okay, I really had to go back to San Antonio uh, now. Yeah, uh, well. we have an In-N-Out now, but Whataburger <laughs> still came. Sorry, but oh. uh, nothing confessed the Whataburger. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, that's, that, I mean, that's uh, spoken like a true Texan, really. I mean, but uh, yeah, so we're looking, we're looking here at Isaiah chapter 13. And um, isn't it just something how it just kind of, I mean, there is a little, we have verse one, at least verse one that tells us, okay, something different is happening here, but I mean, it's a pretty uh, sudden change. And um, I mean, other than the one verse transition, there there isn't much of one. The, this is true. I mean, this is a, uh... This is a prophecy that just comes out of left field, and there's some. I think there's some hints in the preceding chapters that kind of set the stage, but it's a lot easier to see it for us who have all the history and we can look at this after the fact. But uh, this is a prophecy that comes out of complete left field regarding Babylon and, and the Medes because. Uh, the situation that uh, Isaiah is describing here, it, it, probably for the people that were of his day, they would not have had a, had any kind of an inkling that Babylon would become the empire that it would, at least not at this time. 
Right, right. And that, that's a good point a to consider. Prophecy. Right. It's a good point to consider, like, what, what would they have made sense of all this? Because the first, first 12 chapters, when he's prophesying about Assyria, I mean, they all know that Assyria is a big deal. I mean, the whole drama, right, is that Damascus and um, Samaria are in league with each other because Assyria is such a threat. So everyone knows that Assyria is kind of gunning for them and that I say uh, Assyria is going to be a problem. But um, no, no one, no one knows that Babylon is going to come and usurp Assyria. I mean, it's, uh, the, I mean, the history is very interesting, right? Babylon sort of surprises everyone and they build a little rebellion, uh, a league of uh, mutineers and they overthrow the Assyrians. Right. And, What's interesting is at this time, I mean, during this time period that Isaiah prophesied, Babylon Babylon had actually tried some minor insurrections, and they had failed. Every single time they failed. Um, Babylon at this time is, is not a power. It's a small little regional group of people centered around that one little city, and they're really no match for Assyria, not in the time of Isaiah. But right. when you look at the theological flow of this entire section of the book, and all the chapters preceding talking about uh, that Israel will not be saved through political alliances, Israel will be saved by the birth of a child born to a virgin, um, that God has a plan for history, well, then you plop this right at the end of that, and it just reinforces God has a plan for history. Uh, nothing is taking place outside of his plan for humanity. Um, and that's why I really like this chapter, this this uh, particular oracle. It shows God's dedication to his salvation story. To me, that's this is just a piece of it, but it's an important piece. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good it's a good way of thinking about it that this is another piece here because you, what you have, I think, after this unit of twelve chapters, which, as we've seen, fits together in a lot of good ways. What what follows is a series of pieces that kind of start coming together. You've gotten thirteen an oracle against Babylon, right? Um, and there's um, a prophecy of restoration in the following chapter, and then an oracle against. Assyria, and then an oracle against Philistia, and then Moab, and it, it just kind of goes on. You go through just like, you know, every power in the region, to Damascus, Cush, Egypt, um, and so every everyone just gets named, and so it, it seems like the perspective changes, whereas before it was really focused on the, the problems of Isaiah's day, what Isaiah and the people were dealing with, with the threat of Assyria, and now we've taken this kind of universal perspective where we're seeing all of these things as pieces of a bigger puzzle. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, for us, we've got the whole story. Right. Um, and a lot of this, I think God always intended to be understood by later generations. Um, mm. I mean, there's a promise here, of course, to the, to the people that Isaiah is prophesying to, but Isaiah is not just prophesying to his own generation. He's prophesying to all humanity. Um, it, it's a right. the whole the whole book is just a beautiful book, um, but the level of detail that he assumes here that he knows here uh, 
re, it, re, it kind of also reveals that this is a divine revelation. Um, I mean, I think we have to mention the fact that, uh, you know, our, our listeners are out there and they go into a Christian bookstore and they pull off something written about the prophet of Isaiah, they'll probably stumble across the idea that the detail here is so specific regarding Babylon, that Babylon becomes an empire. And nobody would have thought Babylon would ever be able to be conquered. That's how strong it becomes, and that it's actually conquered by the Medes. Uh, None of this. There's no empirical information at all at the time of Isaiah that would even hinted at this. Mm-hmm. And so the liberals will want to say, well, of course, this was written after the fact and put into the book and attributed to Isaiah. It was actually written by someone after it happened. Um, but the problem that they have with that is got to then look at all the other sections of Isaiah that talk in explicit detail about Christ and give almost point-for-point detail on how Christ would be crucified and what he would endure. And there's nobody in the world that wants to say that Isaiah was written after the crucifixion. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Right. Well, that's that's just, yeah, that's, that's a point well taken, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say exactly what was, you know, conceivable or inconceivable for Isaiah, you know, the prophet of God who saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. I mean, uh, and the one who saw the seraphim, right, who had a seraph come up to him and like put a burning coal on his mouth, maybe a whole lot more was conceivable for him than than we give him credit for after an experience like that, you know. And uh, as you were saying, this is a it's a divine oracle. So uh, the the point, though, I think that we could agree with, you know, even the more critical scholars is that the perspective does shift. This is not the perspective of Isaiah is sitting down with King Ahaz and they're talking about. God's take on the problems of this of the current moment. The perspective has changed. This does seem to be kind of like maybe maybe analogous to how like the um the apostle John in Revelation seems to take on this just universal scope and this universal vision all of a sudden where he's just thinking about all the nations of the world looking at the big picture which as as we've been saying points ahead to Christ. So uh, well, we we can agree that much that the perspective has shifted, um, and and you shouldn't read this as like you know, I don't know the the very next thing that Isaiah said to King Ahaz, probably not. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean it's exactly right. This is a big picture kind of worldview, yeah. uh, and I think it is a very fitting comparison to tie this to Revelation because when when Jesus revealed the revelation to John and used Babylon as a type. Right. Um, yes. He he didn't use Rome, which would have been made much more sense to the people of his time. He used mm-hmm. Babylon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that directly ties into this chapter. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good point. And actually, we'll, we'll see this in, I mean, it's, it's several, I mean, it's like, you know, maybe 12 chapters from now, but we'll get mention of Leviathan. Right. And and there is this sense where like Babylon is kind of like always, I don't know, kind of the prototypical like bad guy, you know, and, and you saw that back in Genesis, right? Like in Genesis, um, you know, chapter 11 with like the Tower of Babel, right? I mean, it's sort of like Babylon is sort of like kind of from the beginning kind of seen as just this is what evil looks like when you 
make a city out of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, we're, we might be a little more familiar. Some of our folks might be a little more familiar with Rome kind of being a all encompassing world power. But when you study history, Babylon got there first. Mm-hmm. Uh, Babylon became more than just the city. It became an empire, and it was a center of culture. It was a center of learning. Uh, there was mathematics. There was writing. There was literature. Right. It was all very pagan, but just like Rome was very pagan for most of its history. But Babylon pretty much, maybe even more than Rome because of where it was located between east and west, um, was the master player of the entire known civilized world in its day. Right. right. And yeah. So, so yeah, and if, know, and if, you, if you make a and, right. I, I was going to add, you, you made a good point just about like the influence and the lasting legacy of Babylon. You mentioned mathematics. I mean, just the fact that there are, you know, 24 hours in a day and 60 minutes in an hour and 60 seconds in a, in a minute, right? I mean, like that's that's going back to the the Babylonians. I mean, even like the names for the for the days of the week, and I, I mean, so many things. It's like it, it's all very Babylonian in the way that it's all put together. So, I mean, their influence is is enormous, um, much bigger than we uh, often consider it or give it credit for. But um, well, I, I appreciate like you helping us kind of take take this bigger picture, understanding how the the image um, image before us has shifted now, how the perspective has shifted. Let's go ahead and, and start reading, get a little bit of this read before the break, right? <laughs> um, but so we can read maybe uh, maybe like the first half of the chapter. It's not actually just the, the longest chapter, but I mean, it is, there's a lot of material in here that's very hard to deal with, especially as we get to the end of it. Um, and it just, I mean, the most jarring thing is just how, you know, after the, the beautiful, um, you know, hymn psalm that we had in, in chapter 12, it's just such a, an abrupt change. So it's good to spend some time thinking about it. So let's go ahead and read, maybe say like the first five verses, though. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So uh, already just looking at that, I mean, it's uh, it's just like we were saying, it's the very universal scope. And, and you have that, you know, in verse four, the full title there, um, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host. You know, very clearly, um, this is just showing transparently, host means armies. And, and the idea, the perspective of God here is that God is the Lord of all the armies of the earth, essentially. And he's moving them all around like uh, pawns on a chessboard. And he's uh, doing this all on a global scale. Exactly. And that is exactly what did take place when 
uh, when the Medes came against Babylon, the, the Persian Median Empire was very much an eclectic empire composed of many, many, many nations. Right. Uh, Persians did the same thing as Rome. When they conquered a people, they tried really hard to assimilate them mm -hmm. rather than just enslave them. They did do a lot of the enslaving too, but right. they also tried to assimilate them and they were largely successful. And um, the I mean, the details of the prophecy are astounding in their spe specificity for how things came together. Mm -hmm. um, but this is God moving. Again, this, this conveys the story that the whole world, we're, you know, we're going to see a little later, even the heavens shake up. But nothing can stop God's plan. Right. Um, right. He is, he is the, the universal Lord of hosts. He is the Lord who gives the kingdoms of the earth to whom he pleases. And that, that, that theme again, that was um, just over and over again from, from Daniel. Right. Um, I mean, and this is, I mean, we mentioned uh, revelation and this for that matter is very similar to Daniel, even in that kind of just perspective of, God being the one who's, you know, pulling the strings of, of history across all of these things. Um, what what do you make of verse two, though? I mean, I think that some of this stuff, they come from a distant land from the ends of the heavens. I think that kind of makes sense with what we were saying. What What's it getting at with verse two, though, on a bare hill? That's literally the first thing that's said here in this oracle. Well, it's actually, it, it makes, it's very, very good sense. Um, you know, in the ancient world, they did not have, technology like we have for maneuvering forces. And so it was very common uh, for those who had to maneuver a large bulk of forces that they would find the closest elevated land. And if it was timbered, they would clear it. Mm. And that way they could actually raise various types of standards that would communicate various types of maneuver. Um, and you would be able to see it from 360 degrees around that hill from a distance. Uh, so you got a reference to that raise a signal. You also got a reference to cry aloud, the verbal signals that were used, mm -hmm. and hand signals. And so this is very much a specific, this is the way that militaries worked in this time period. And so what we're being told here is that this is going to be a military force it comes against the gates of the nobles, which is interesting because Babylon was known as the noble city because most mm -hmm. of Babylon's actual inhabitants were part of the nobility. Right. Um, and so, again, astounding detail uh, mm -hmm. as to what actually came place. Yeah, that, thanks. That's helpful. I mean, understanding that like the, all this imagery is just thoroughly mil militaristic from the beginning, even in verse two with the Bear Hill reference, just an execution of of, of military strategy, uh, just standard kind of operating procedure. And and yeah, you make a good point about Babylon, and we saw that how in in Daniel, you know, in the visions that Daniel had. You know, ba Babylon was there's something noble about Babylon, right? There was, um, you know, it was the the golden, the golden head of the statue, right? There's something that was more noble about it, perhaps in some respects, than even um, the Medes and the Persians and all the ones who came later. Um, you know, of course, uh, from the perspective of God, that might just be an excess of wealth all in one city, and just you know, a kind of um, 
just opulence that that needs to be overthrown because its heart is far from God. But uh, certainly, as you were saying, something that in the ancient world would have been something very suggestive of Babylon in particular. But we got to hold that thought. We need to go into a short break. But when we get back, we'll look at the rest of chapter 13 of Isaiah here on Thy Strong Word. We'll be right back. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. I'm Jay Ashcroft, Missouri's Secretary of State. Our securities division works hard to protect Missouri investors. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Call us to learn if your investment advisor is properly registered. Give us a call today at 800-721-7996 and check with us before you write the check. Sponsored by Missouri's Secretary of State, Securities Division, Investor Education, and Protection Fund. On this Tuesday, October 1st, 2019, KFUO Radio thanks our day sponsors, David and Heather Carlson of Arnold, Missouri, as they give thanks to the Lord for the blessing of marriage. David and Heather made a contribution to KFUO Radio in thanksgiving to the Lord as they celebrate their ninth wedding anniversary today. Thank you, David and Heather Carlson, for helping us share the gospel and for being today's KFUO Day Sponsors. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa, and we're joined today by Pastor David Reedy, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Looking at Isaiah 13, as we were saying, a portion of Isaiah that, I mean, it does truly belong in the book of Isaiah, but a portion which begins a new section with a different perspective, not the perspective of looking at the kind of events and times of the days of Isaiah and Ahaz, but this kind of universal perspective that you sometimes kind of have approached in Daniel and Revelation and things like that. And so here's this universal perspective here as we begin this series of oracles against all these different nations and the oracle against Babylon. Here we have a very precise uh, military picture of what the Medes are going to do to the Babylonians, which is, you know, way off in the future compared to what we've been talking about with like, you know, the fall of Samaria around 720 BC and, you know, the siege of Jerusalem around 700. I mean, just this is uh, significantly off in the future here, closer to Daniel and Ezra, like we've been talking about earlier. So we just read verse, what was it? Verse five here, just kind of setting up this sort of military picture here of, you know, the, the, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. And if you have a question for us, because this is one we're going to get into this next section where, I mean, there's there's really a few doozies here. Uh, if you got a question or a comment for us, do call in if you're listening live, 
If you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. Or if you're in uh, San Antonio or any other place, 1-800-730-2727. Or everyone, you can also send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. So let's go ahead and read this next section here, 6 through 16, this kind of middle portion here. And um, it, it's a ferocious, ferocious picture. Um, and so, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and read it here, um, but let's just kind of try, try to let Scripture speak for itself, and then we'll try to consider, okay, what, what's going on? What, what do we make of these words? So here it is, picking it up at verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. A destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place, at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger, and like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. So... No, no stretch to say this is pretty much just the worst kind of chaos imaginable described here. The day of the Lord is described in the most uh, cruel and wrathful terms uh, available to Isaiah. Yeah, I have to apologize if, if you directed something in my direction. I there for just a few minutes. I was not actually able to hear the broadcast. Oh no, I'm sorry about that. Well, we just we just read verses six through sixteen here. Are you able to to hear me clearly right now? Yes, yes, it's good now. Okay, yeah. So we were just we just read six through sixteen, and I was just saying how this is pretty much the worst kind of chaos that Isaiah could have possibly describe. Uh, I mean, describe, and it's the way that he describes the day of the Lord and the, the day of the Lord is described as cruel and wrathful and, and full of fierce anger. And I mean, and, and the picture is just awful, isn't it? Yes. Um, and it gets even worse as we move on. Um, but this is war in the ancient world. Um, so, you know, you have the near, the near view, which deals with actual history with the way that, Many of these conquests took place uh, a lot of times when a power was seen as a threat, uh, it would be raised to the ground. When, when, when Rome went against Carthage, it was a very similar thing. 
Uh, Carthage never never was anything again. Uh, Babylon had proven that it was going to be tyrannical over uh, its neighbors, and so when its neighbors finally got the upper hand, they weren't going to leave anything left uh, that could even possibly come back. Um, that's the near view. But the far view, you know, the wider view, which takes us to the day of the Lord, that this is also a type of, that we see in Revelation, this is dreadful. Um, the judgment is dreadful, but there's also a little bit of a promise in this. Hmm. Um, the evil of Babylon is never, never came back. Hmm. It never again touched the world. And so there's a promise in this that God, yes, there will be terrible destruction of all the things that, that are evil and ungodly, but it's also a purifying thing. Uh, God is purifying the world. Um, so there's a little bit of a hint of gospel in here. Even in verse 12, there's a little bit of a hint of gospel. I will make people yeah. more rare than fine gold, but but we get a hint of that theology of the remnant. Um, right. Right, and, and we saw that how in, in the first several chapters there was that metaphor of a refining fire, one that's going to burn up um, and going to and going to bring destruction. But on the other hand, one that's going to you know melt away or burn away the dross from the silver or refine the gold in this case. So right there, there is there is that 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 kind of double sense there. But I mean, this is um oh gosh, what was it? Was it was it chapter uh, like nine or ten? But like we just had one of these oracles that was just kind of like nonstop destruction, and there was kind of like one verse in the middle of it that was something like you know, and tell the righteous that it will be well with them, and then went went in the next breath right back to the destruction. So um, this chapter feels a lot like that. That. I mean, the whole thing just feels just very bleak. But as you said, uh, I mean, you know, the, the law for the enemies of God is gospel for his people. I mean, in the sense that this is God dealing with finally this this kind of ultimate evil Babylon that stands for, as you said, um, you know, much more than just the historical city, but but also just kind of all the forces of evil that you see um, even in in the book of Revelation that, you know, if God's going to finally deal with this and wipe them out, then, I mean, this is similar then, not to not too much unlike what we saw in the previous chapter in God saving from the Assyrians like the way that he saved from the Egyptians when there is an army of, of Egyptian soldiers washed up on the shore of the Red Sea. And, yeah, that's a gruesome picture. Uh, but what it means is, and that's what, that's what God said in Exodus— these guys are never going to bother you again. And I think we see the same same kind of decisive action when God decides. That's the other thing, too, another theme that we get here and throughout Isaiah. When God decides to act and he says he's going to do something, it's decisive action. Uh, mm -hmm. He makes up his mind, he gives his word, and he fulfills that word. Um so the, the consequences because of our sin can be extremely deadly. Uh, you know, from a, from a historical anthropological perspective, when, you know, the scholars look at this, you know, 
from a non-theological standpoint, they will say, Babylon reaped what it sowed. Right. And, but it's not a horrible theological point either. Uh, this mm-hmm. is judgment that Babylon brings on itself. Right. You know, in many ways, Babylon was a civilization. They had all that was the best of humanity at the time, intelligence, understanding, writing, technology at the time. They didn't have electricity, but but they right. were a civilization, and right. yet they were also a great evil. They mm-hmm. They had all of it. And so when God says that he's going to deal with the evil, they they had potential. They could have been something different, but mm-hmm. they weren't. And right. so God judges them for not being what they should have been and for being even worse than, than, right. than they should have been. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's really helpful to understand because, you know, yes, this is given from the perspective of this is the, the day of the Lord. This is happening at the direction of and at the, uh, I mean, I mean, really at the, at the will of Yahweh Sabaoth. This is, this is his will that this happens. And we can react to that and say, you know, I mean, I mean, literally, I suppose, oh my God, this is terrible. How could the, the one true God, the God who is, you know, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, um, want this to happen, right? Uh, but we've talked about that, that, you know, his wrath is, you know, and, and we actually use these kind of technical terms before, you know, his alien will and um, his alien work and his uh, proper work, right? That th- this is this is not what God wants in his heart of hearts, so to speak. This is, this is not like his... Um, you know, like the thing that's at the top of his list. Um, rather, this is this is him saying, you know, like you said, Babylon, you could have been something else. You could have been not just materially great. You could have been actually great. Instead, you chose this other way. And this is God letting Babylon basically do what it wants. This is this is letting Babylon reap what they sow um, because Babylon did not want to go and turn its uh turn its its head away from the, its its evil gaze and to go down a different path i mean and, and you saw that when we were looking at daniel you know i mean like the people of israel were interacting with babylon you know they actually had this opportunity to come in contact with the one true god and his people um and even though there were some moments right in daniel where we saw that okay yeah there's some interaction with nebuchadnezzar being humbled at the end of the day um did not change course though and so this is god saying all right you uh, here i'm giving you chances here i'm like i'm bringing my people to actually come and help you but if you just insist on going down this way then fine then then this is this is this is what you're asking for so this is what you'll get and so this is just as you were saying the natural consequence if you're going to be this tyrannical and you're going to be constantly um, rising up an insurrection under every single government um, put over you, this is how people are going to deal with you. And this is what they're going to do to the entire population, the infants, the children, the women. I mean, th- this is what they have um, brought on themselves. And that's no, that's no stretch to say. Um, the thing that that's kind of interesting to me, that's sort of the other side of this, though, maybe that's kind of seen as kind of in more natural terms, but what do you make of some of the stuff that seems kind of, um, I don't know, from our perspective, perhaps supernatural, like in verse 10, 
the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Or even a few verses later, how it says, you'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. Um, what, what do you make of this sort of language? At the very beginning, the, the first part about not seeing the stars and the light, um, that could be very from a from a near view from a from a literal historical view i mean when when this destruction comes there's usually a lot of fire associated with it and the smoke is often so thick that the light of the sky you know is indeed dim but there's mm. more than that going on here it harkens us to the promise of the new testament of a new heaven and a new earth um theologically this is telling us that and we'll see this a little bit later when it talks about Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. This is a judgment on the hubris of humanity. We think certain things are just unshakable. They can't be destroyed. They can't be touched. Uh, they're strong. They're vibrant. They're vital. Like the earth below us is strong and vibrant. And yet none of this has any power in the face of the God who actually created it. The God who created it can uncreate it. In fact, he promises there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The old will pass away. Right. Um, and so the day of the Lord, when God goes and finally that last day arrives and he purifies all things, it's going to be comprehensive. And again, this is a dreadful Thing. For, for the people going through this, now the Babylonians, they have powerful armies and they've got powerful walls. And for generation upon generation, by this time, they will have been powerful and great and no one could have, will have been able to touch them. And when that changes in the blink of an eye and their walls are breached, right, and they see everything they have built start to be taken apart in the way that is described here. Right. What can what is there that is can be trusted of humanity? What of human creation can be trusted? And that's kind of the message right. here. It's a it's a strong warning. Fits with the, the rest of the theme of the book that Isaiah is constantly saying: stop trusting in human stuff, whether it be political alliances, your own strength, et cetera, mm-hmm. and so forth. Trust in God, because God is the only unshakable power there is. That's right. Yeah, no, that's, that's a helpful perspective that, I mean, you know, for them, having something like Babylon, this this mighty empire, you know, this empire, which in, in many ways to them seemed divine, the, the the thought that they would be overthrown, it's like the world is getting turned upside down, you know, and, and we, we saw this when we were looking at Daniel, how, you know, you, you saw that these kings, you know, they were worshipped like gods, you know, and, and they would even, you know, command like the whole population to, hey, we're going to, you know, worship the king this month, you know, and then next month we'll worship a different god, but the king, you know, you know, he's a god too, so we'll worship him this month. I mean, it's just... These these guys they they imagine their empires to be re- reaching the heavens. This is very similar to the Tower of Babel in Genesis. This idea that they're up there with 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 the angels with with the gods in their view, and so it's fitting language, like you said, on the literal level. Because yeah, with all of this sort of destruction, 
the skies are going to be so dark. I mean, just full of smoke. I mean, we 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 haven't. You you get this sometimes out in Southern California when there's really bad fires, um, because I mean the whole sky just everywhere around there you just can't see anything, and it can be like that for days if it's a really bad fire. But I mean, you gotta imagine, like you know, if if this is going on for weeks, weeks of just burning stuff to the ground, yeah, you literally don't see things. But as you said, this is talking about you know upending their view of things. This this is destruction. Um, of their divine empire that they trust in, of the, all the gods and the idols that they trust in. This is this is taking the sun and the moon that they worship, and it's like smashing them to pieces. It's judgment on the idols and the gods of um, of paganism, on on really the the sinful heart of humanity. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's go ahead and read the last portion here. Um, it's it's only six more verses, but you do get a little bit more of the, the specific mention in specific terms here, for instance, of the Medes. Um, and, it, and it completes the picture here before uh, chapter 14. So if we read this here, we'll still have a few minutes. So picking it up here at verse 17, then. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell. And there wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places, palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. So as you as you were saying, I mean, this is this picture of just total and complete destruction um, and it just talks about how merciless the Medes are going to be as they roll in. Um, I mean, as you were saying, I mean, there is something kind of interesting that when, when the Persians become the more dominant part of the Medo-Persian Empire, you know, it, it doesn't really lose the Median character, but um the, the Medes are sort of like kind of the, the first ones onto the scene and they kind of come into power even before the Persians become a major element of that. Uh, the, the thing that's kind of perplexing to me, or at least it may, maybe just a little, it's not perplexing maybe because I think there are some good answers, but a little puzzling is that it talks about Babylon like it's getting wiped off the map. And, and, and yet, of course, we know that, I mean, Babylon's going to be I mean, you know, when when Cyrus of Persia comes, I mean, he's just going to be basically welcomed into the city. <laughs> um, I mean, like, and it's going to stay there. Um, so what what is, what are we to make of kind of this description, which seems like a total raising, perhaps, but Babylon's going to be around through at least a few different um, kingdoms. It is true. Babylon does survive the first initial assault. Uh, he's welcomed, you know, uh, when the Medes first come in, the city sees the writing on the wall, and uh, but there's a couple other uh, events. You know, the next time they take the walls down, uh, the next time 
Um, they start taking the temples down. I think what this is, is it's taking the process of a, of a generation and a half and just taking us to the end state. And the end state is that Babylon was, over a generation and a half, taken apart, and it has never been rebuilt. There, it's not been inhabited. Right now it is exactly as described here. It's a right. desert, and no one lives there. And the only influence it has are little things, like you said, the way we, we keep time, that people don't even remember unless they're very well trained in history that that's where that comes from. Yeah. Um, so just as God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's, there was no civilization left there, same thing did happen to Babylon, which is astounding. Uh, it would be astounding to the people who experienced Babylon, who mm-hmm. lived in Babylon, because to say that nothing would happen. But God can do these things. You know, Rome, when Rome fell, I've actually right. walked through the ruins of the Forum, and to see how little is left right. of one of the greatest civilizations and governments the world had ever known. Um, when God puts judgment upon things, it, it can be a very severe and serious judgment. Uh, what what mm-hmm. I find very interesting here is this direct reference to the Medes, because at the time of Isaiah, um, the Medes and the Persians were actually both very minor people groups. Right. And they were allied with each other against Assyria. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the Medes were actually working with the people of Babylon, right. such as they were at the time. And so to think that the Medes and the Babylonians would go head-to-head... <laughs> right. It's kind of a stretch. No, no, but, that, that, that's right. It's not from the perspective of just kind of like the weather report in Isaiah's day. This is right, this exactly. is truly a different perspective. Well, and like you were saying, I mean, it really is thoroughly a universal perspective because this isn't even from the perspective of uh, of the exile, which, you know, later on Isaiah is going to kind of take, I think, the perspective of the exile in view. But this is this is this universal perspective that shows even you know beyond when when Babylon well, ba- Babylonia gets its comeuppance you know from Cyrus and the Persians and you know far later after that how later on it finally gets uh, brought into desolation. Right. I mean th- this is just this and universal Isaiah, view. And Isaiah has actually shown their motivation. You know they yeah. they don't care about the plunder. They don't care about the silver and the gold. They're just angry. And why are they angry? Because the Babylonians, when they finally did conquer the Assyrian Empire, they turned around and then they put the Medes under their thumb. Right. And the Medes felt betrayed and worked for generations to try to to reclaim their liberty. Um, Right. So, again, the specific detail of what God revealed to Isaiah here. Uh, but there's a warning in this. People, for the governments of the world and for any institution, when you think yeah. you've got your people in your pocket, that's right. you start to abuse your people, it can come back. That's um, right. 
Yeah, but, and how uh, how often is that that we have a, a world now where there's there's probably a few powers, um, probably speaking from the perspective of one of them, that feels pretty invincible. Um, and like we've got people pretty much in our in our pocket. Like, yeah, of course they're never going to betray us. They're always going to help us out. We do so much for them, right? But uh, exactly. no, nobody's invincible. And history's full of these kinds of stories. You know, um, the revolt of Spartacus, the Rome didn't take serious in its early days because who could think that a few gladiators and some runaway slaves would actually be a threat? Right. And they got close to sacking Rome itself. Um, right. But uh, yeah, the, the detail of the history here is, is just really amazing. Um, and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, right, uh, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's exactly what it is. Um, right, right, and, and so you know all of this in this universal picture. You know, as we as we were saying kind of earlier on in the hour, it, it's it's just pointing to okay. So what are we going to depend on, right? So what where will where will our hope be then? And, and the only answer: none of the kingdoms of the world, none none of these princes. Only in the King of Kings, only the one who's going to have crowns and thrones before him fall, only the one that every knee shall bow to on heaven, on earth, and on, under the earth, the King Jesus Christ, the ultimate King of Kings. Thank you so much, brother. You really helped give a really uh, good historical perspective on just everything with Babylon setting us up for what's to come. I appreciate it, and I'm, I'm glad to hear things are going well in San Antonio and wish you and everyone you. the best. Blessings and peace. God's blessings to all who are listening. Everybody, thank you for joining us. We had Pastor David Reedy, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, today. Check out our underwriters, Lutheran Heritage Foundation, lhfmissions.org. Till next time, everybody. Peace. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting by Strong Word.